0: wake, joyful or fearful, whether you walked or rolled, took the bus or drove your car, however you show up in this time, in this moment, you are welcome here. Whether this is your place for 30 years or for just an hour, you are welcome here. We are glad to be together. I invite you now to join in singing our opening song as Jean leads us.
1: Sometimes in our lives we all have faith sorrow but if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend I'll have you care Somebody to lean on You just call on me sister When you need a hand We all need somebody To lean on I just might have a problem That you'll understand We all need somebody To lean on To bear that you can't carry. Oh, I'm right off the road. I'll share your love. If you just call me, you got to call me. When you need a friend, call me. Oh, you gotta, gotta call me. Call me, call me, call me.
2: Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Elise Gould. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope you got a blue name tag so we know who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions you may have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you are looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and in the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program so we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I wanna remind you to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present with us here this morning. And now I invite Catherine O'Kester and John Kester Who are organizing our coat drive to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices?
1: I'm representing the West Coat Drive for refugee families, for adults and children of all sizes. Today's the last day we're collecting coats and I want to thank the community for their wonderful, generous contributions and donations of goods and clothes to this wonderful Afghan family that we're taking care of for another couple months. And the statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person we strive through our relationships to elicit the best in human spirit. We, With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders.
2: Thank you, John and Catherine. As they light the candles, uh, as they light the candle, please join me in the candlelighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. We ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world, especially, particularly let's hold in our hearts the people of Sutherland Springs, Texas, where the recent shooting was, and all lives lost to gun violence in this country and around the world. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I now invite you into a time of meditation. Take a deep breath. And take a moment to center yourself, whatever that means for you. Get comfortable in your seat. Close your eyes if that feels right. We're gonna take the next couple minutes to breathe and reflect. take another deep breath. Today's theme is about emotions. So let's take the next minute to get right down to the emotions that might be present for you at this particular moment. Check in. What are you feeling? Are you feeling impatient, anxious, calm, sleepy? Or something else at this very moment? Maybe you're feeling various emotions at once. Whatever it is, acknowledge it. And in the next minute and the music that follows, you have a couple of choices. You can attempt to experience that emotion fully and just go with it. Think about where that's coming from, that feeling. Or if you prefer, you can step back and just look at that emotion and let the emotions go through you and just pay attention to what you're feeling at this time and breathe through all of that
0: Elise and Jean, thank you so much for that. I am feeling very centered and calm right now. This month, we are exploring the theme of abundance. Last week, Rebecca Montgomery, who is a military chaplain and Unitarian Universalist minister, spoke to us about the abundance of love in the world and about allowing that abundance to draw us to a life of service. And Donna Radner has created this beautiful quilt for our month. Donna is our Artist of the Year this year. She she created this specifically for the theme of abundance and the idea of abundance in nature, the beauty around us, And, of course, next week is our much-beloved Stone Soup Sunday, our annual gathering when we tell a story that every year is a story of abundance and generosity, of there being enough in a community, enough to nourish us all. So as I was thinking about what I wanted to do with this Sunday's Uh, treatment of abundance. I had all of these ideas about the abundance in nature and the enoughness in the world. And then I decided to do something totally different. Uh, Nature is still abundant, I'm happy to tell you, and um, so is this community and the way that it feeds and nourishes us, and we will indeed celebrate that together. But I wanted this Sunday to think about the abundance of emotion. Or perhaps, as I titled the platform, the over, question mark, abundance of emotion. Many years ago, when I was in formation, uh, so I was in seminary or in my internship somewhere in my journey to becoming a minister and an ethical culture leader, I remember being part of a conversation among other clergy and students about whether or not a minister could be angry. Could they hold and especially express anger in their congregations, with their congregants. I don't think it was exactly that they could like literally never feel anger, but, but could they come from a place of anger? And what I remember most about that conversation was thinking to myself, well, that's not really relevant to me because I don't really get particularly angry. <laughs> and it's true. My general outlook, the place that I usually work from is one of joyfulness, of abundance, perhaps. The justice work that I do is most frequently fueled by my sense of the world we could create and how beautiful that is by a desire to see that world come to pass. And so I remember all those years ago thinking, well, you know, whether ministers can or can't show anger, whether clergy are supposed to be angry in front of their congregants, you know, it's never really going to come up for me. So this past year, huh, gee, yeah, this past year has tested my uh, understanding of myself as a not angry person. There have been a number of reasons to be angry. There are always, actually, a number of reasons to be angry. But for me, in particular, over the past year, I think it has been the resurfacing of sort of casual misogyny in our national discourse, both in our actual political discourse, right, actual elected political leaders who um, openly espouse misogynistic views, um, but also sort of in the culture out there. I don't know if any of the rest of you have experienced this heightening or... Um uh, in our culture. And then, of course, in the last few weeks with the Me Too campaign, as, or movement, rather, as more and more women, both women that I know and women out in the world, have come out talking about the sexual harassment and assault that they experience on a regular basis. And I want to note, of course, that women are not the only people who experience harassment and assault. Absolutely, so do people who are non-binary, and so do men. But the movement as a whole has really been about the structures, the systems of society that so frequently place people who identify or as identify or are identified as female in danger And then in just the last couple of weeks, we have seen one, uh, one public figure after another fall to the accusations which I believe of their own misbehavior at times in their lives. Someone said recently on Facebook that we should just start a list of public figures we think haven't uh, engaged in sexual assault or harassment, men um, in power who have not, and, and sort of go from that. I don't know about that, but it has been disheartening to see over and over people I admire, people who have made me laugh and who are not what they seemed. So over these last few weeks and months and year, I have found myself suddenly angry. Very angry sometimes. And I have tried to figure out what to do about that. Now that this long ago conversation about what ministers are allowed to do and what they are allowed to feel has come out. And I am aware of the way that as a woman who was raised in a pretty waspy culture, I have been encouraged to push that anger down the way that women who express anger in public are so often faced with criticism and backlash. Even now, I wonder what I will hear from you after this platform. What does it mean to express and feel our anger? Anger is not, though, the only emotion that we might have in abundance certainly not the only emotion I have had in abundance. It feels present to me right now and I think there is a particular place in the American conversation and in our conversation as a community that works for justice and against oppression. I know that as a white person some of the work that I have done is to learn how to be present to the anger of people of color the anger that they express when looking at the systems and structures, when experiencing racist systems and structures, structures of white supremacy in our country. I have had to learn how to be present to that anger, to allow it, to sit with it, to listen to it. But I have also at times in my life been overcome with an abundance of joy. I have been overcome with an abundance of grief, and I know some of you have as well. One of the things that I often hear from folks who come to me after a great loss in their lives, after they have lost a loved one, whether unexpectedly or long-expected, is the sense that grief has taken them over. That they don't know anymore who they are outside that grief. That it's all just so much for them. I want to make a distinction between the sort of experience of deep and and overwhelming emotion with the experience of depression or anxiety, the experience of mental illness. Many of us experience both of those things in our lifetime. Mental health is, for almost everyone, a spectrum that we move in and around. But there is still yet a difference between mental illness and the need for treatment around that and, and simply being so full of an emotional experience. Anxiety might work that way for you as well. I don't know if any of you have ever, like me, felt overwhelmed by anxiety in the midst of it, as though it has taken everything around you I think sometimes about the way that snowballs, you know, you're anxious about one little thing and then everything else gets packed in like you're rolling a giant snowman except it's not at all fun. (laughs) Anxiety taking over the overabundance of anxiety. And so one of the things I think about all of these emotional abundances that we can have of anger or of grief, of anxiety, even of joy or of happiness, all these big emotions, one of the things I think about is the way that our society tells us not to show them too much. The way that WASP society in particular, that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant stiff upper lip, You know, I have the poster in my office, Keep Calm and Carry On. That poster, as you might know, was developed during uh, World War II in England while folks were being uh, bombed during the Blitz. And uh, all around London went up posters, Keep Calm and Carry On. Seems a little extreme. I like it. I put it up in my office. (laughs) It helps me sometimes. And yet, if you're in the midst of bombing, it actually might be appropriate to have an overabundance of anxiety and fear. So I think about the ways that we are told not to share those emotions fully, not to feel them as much as they are. And there is a part of me that wants to say, oh, just take them as big as they come, right? Allow yourself to feel all the feelings, every last one of them. Share them. Talk about them. Don't stuff them down where they will fester in your stomach acid. But let them be fully who you are. And then, then I think about something else I learned while I was in formation, something that I believe in strongly When I was um, in seminary and then um, also during my work here, I have done a fair amount of study of systems theory. Some of you have heard me talk about systems theory before, or you've come to see me and I've tried to make you read books about it, or um, I've showed you videos about it. I have a really great two-minute one. If you're interested, just email me. (laughs) I love systems theory. I have found it a very helpful way to approach not just my work in the community to understand how a community functions, but also just to understand how relationships function, how families function, how I function. Systems theory is a way of looking at people, their relationships with each other, and it sees us as all in relationship, right? That none of us are just a single person, but we're all in relationship with each other. And like anything, it's a framework, it's helpful or not, depending on whether you connect with it. But I found it to be very useful. One of the takeaways from systems theory, for me, one of the most important ones has been the idea of non-reactivity or less reactivity, or sometimes it's called being a non-anxious presence. In fact, when you're preparing for ministry, that's one of the things that you're supposed to like check off a list. Yes, I have learned to be a non-anxious presence. I used to think of it um, like a lotion or a body spray maybe I could get, you know, just like sort of, oh, I'm going to put some non-anxious presence on right now, but I'm ready to go. The idea there is that when you um, approach a situation of emotional reactivity, you do so with a hope to bring the reactivity down a little bit. That you don't absorb the anxiety or the anger or the fear, the reactivity in the emotional system, but instead you turn it down just a little bit so that people are able to approach ideas thoughtfully and carefully. I will say, actually, that the non-anxious presence is really better labeled a less anxious presence, which is much more doable. I am frequently less anxious than a person in front of me. I am rarely totally non-anxious. But many of us can aspire to less anxious. Less anxious than the emotional reactivity in front of me. And so I have been trying to reconcile these two truths, I feel. The importance of feeling our emotions really fully and deeply, allowing them to be. And at the same time, my belief that non-reactivity, that less anxiety is, is good, is helpful, is healthful, that I want in a space to be able to operate out of that less anxious part of myself. I have been thinking about how to reconcile those. I had this conversation a while back with someone who was experiencing some grief and loss, and we were talking about centering as a a way to sort of reclaim what it was that this person was looking for about centering meditation and particularly about Tara Brock's work, um, which I've talked about before. Tara Brock invites us when we are doing centering work to start by really noticing what we are feeling, allowing it in fully, and then to begin to shift to observing it as Elise offered in the meditation, to step back just a tiny bit from that deep emotional space to observe it, to breathe into it, to slowly release its grip on us. But Tara Brach offers a warning in that work She says that when we are too much in the midst of our emotions, particularly if they are difficult ones, anxiety or fear, incredible pain, that we may not be ready to move on to centering yet. That in fact, it could be dangerous to try to sit with those emotions too fully, that we may need a break before we get into them. So I am thinking about the way that centering can help us to find that place of stepping back. Uma Thurman, uh, the actress, was interviewed recently on the red carpet about um, the uh, allegations (laughs) um, against Harvey Weinstein and, and the many things that have been surfacing around sexual assault and sexual harassment in Hollywood. And uh, she had a great quote, which has been much shared. Thurman said, I don't have a tiny soundbite for you because I've learned that when I've spoken in anger, I usually regret the way I express myself. So I've been waiting to feel less angry. And when I'm ready, I'll say what I have to say. I can relate to Uma Thurman Pretty much only in that, actually. <laughs> Not sure any other part of Uma Thurman's life is super relatable for me. Um, on my red carpet walks, I uh, don't usually get asked those questions or go on them. Um, but in this particular instance, I can relate to Uma Thurman because I know that when I have sent those emails in the midst of anger or posted those Facebook posts, so easy, the share button, I have sometimes later regretted. I have thought that was not exactly quite what I wish I had said now. It was perhaps exactly what I wish I had said in the moment, but not quite what I wish I had said now. And it speaks to me of the importance of that step back, the ability to be less reactive when we act. Not when we feel, but when we act. All of this reminded me, of course, as I'm sure it does you, um, uh, the founding of Buddhism. You might know that story, yes. Oh, so look, it reminded someone of the founding of Buddhism. I hope in the same way. <laughs> You'll say no, that's totally not it. You may know the story of sort of the beginnings of Buddhism. There was a prince, Siddhartha, who had been sheltered uh, from all suffering in the world. Uh, and in fact, just recently I read a little bit more about that story um, that that told me that his father specifically sheltered him from the suffering because he had seen the way that other princes had been drawn by suffering out into working for the world, and he wanted to make sure that Siddhartha would be... Um, focused instead on his princely duties, on his royal self. And so he was sheltered. He never saw a sick person. He never saw death around him, sheltered and cloistered in the palace. Except, of course, one day he got out. He went out on a journey, persuaded someone to take him around the palace grounds and out into the city in a carriage. And outside, he saw someone who was ill and asked, what is that? And a funeral procession and asked, what is that? And learned about sickness and death and all that was wrong in the world. And out of that experience, he was overwhelmed with the emotion of it, the overabundance of sadness, of fear, of loss in the world. And as his father had feared, he left the palace, he left his family, and he went out seeking spiritual teachers who could help him to make sense of all that he was feeling, of the deep and overwhelming emotions that he had when he looked at the suffering in the world. And each teacher was unable to help him fully until finally, the story tells us, he sat underneath a tree over hours and hours. He fought with Mara, the Buddhist understanding or symbology of the devil who tried to pull him away. He stayed thinking and quiet and stilling his mind until he came to what he called a state of awakeness. I am awake. That story, to me, is the story of a person full of emotion, overwhelmed by emotion, and using it somehow as a fuel for awakeness moving into what we consider to be the very paragon of less anxiety, of less reactivity, a centeredness there. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, believed that the religious impulse came out of our experience of pain in the world. He talked about three different spiritual pains, and one of them was very similar to the pain that Siddhartha experienced, the pain of seeing suffering that you cannot fix, suffering you cannot alleviate. We see that around us all the time. Adler felt that it was out of this experience of great pain, these spiritual pains we had, that we were propelled into what he would have called the religious impulse, the impulse of community building, the impulse of connection, the impulse of justice work. It is out of an experience of emotionality that we are called into this work together, this place Dennis McCarthy is a Unitarian Universalist minister who writes a, a blog called Thoughts from a Gentle Atheist. It's a sweet blog, actually, I recommend it to you. And just yesterday, he posted these words To even be human, he wrote, is to celebrate and to commemorate, to laugh and to weep, to worry and to rejoice. When we do these things in thoughtful community, they become full and sacred. They become energy with which we empower the rounded richness of our lives. In addition to the story of the Buddha and my own ministerial training, the other image that has come up for me is Bette Midler. Particularly Bette Midler in the First Wives Club, does anyone remember that movie, <laughs> right? You know, it's two or three, I think, uh, women who, um, who had been the first wives, their husbands uh, uh, left them, and uh, there's some reconciling at some point, spoiler alert. Um, but anyway, they reclaim their lives in different ways. They go back to work, they start a business, you know. What I remember most about that movie is the ending sequence when Bette Midler and Diane Keaton and another person, Goldie Hawn, of course, when Bette Midler and Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn dress up in white suits. They're at some sort of fancy gathering, and they sing the song, You Don't Own Me. That classic Song. They of course they sing it really well. Well, Bette Midler sings it really well. It turns out Diane Keaton may be not such a singer. <clears throat> but they sing it really well and with such verb. And I have been thinking about that song, that idea, both about the emotion that they portray in that song, You Don't Own Me, a little bit of anger mixed in with bravery, with courage, with freedom all of their emotions full and present and out there. And I have also been thinking about the idea of owning our emotions, owning them fully and deeply, feeling our grief when we feel it, our fear when we are in the midst of it, our anger when it comes to us. Owning them and making sure they don't own us. How we can feel them fully and deeply. And yet, like Uma Thurman, wait until we are ready to say what we have to say. Like Adler, like Buddha, we are given the opportunity for our emotions to fuel our work. My anger fuels my work for justice. I am glad I feel it. I am glad it is a part of who I am, that I am able to let it in fully. And then I am glad when I am able to channel it well. To take the breath needed and from a place of awakeness do the work. My grief fuels my empathy. I am better at sitting with people because I have felt pain. My fear fuels my drive for safety for all. My joy fuels my love. My hope for us, for me, is that we can somehow have both. That we can be a place here where emotions are felt fully and deeply, where they are allowed in a way that perhaps our own upbringing did not encourage. And that at the same time, we can find that center, each of us, and work from a place of awakeness fueled by the abundance of emotion and by our hope for change.
1: A small thing once happened at school That brought up a question for me And somehow it forced me to see The price that I paid to be cool Diane is a girl that I know She's strange like she doesn't belong I don't mean to say that it's wrong We don't like to be with her though And so when we all made a plan To have this big party at Sue's Most kids in the school got the news But no one invited Diane the thing about Taft Junior High your secrets don't last very long. I acted like nothing was wrong when I saw Diane start to cry. I know you may think that I'm cruel, it doesn't make me very proud. I just went along with the crowd It's sad, but you have to in school You can't pick the friends you'd prefer You fit in as well as you can I couldn't be friends with Diane Cause then they would treat me like her in one class at Taft Junior High, we study what people have done with gas chamber bomber and gun in Auschwitz, Japan me lie I don't understand all I learn sometimes I just sit there and cry. Stood idly by to watch while the innocent burned Like robots obeying some rule Atrocities done by a mob All innocent doing their job And what was it for, was it cool The world was aware of this hell, but nobody cried out in shame No heroes and no one to blame, true stories that no one dare tell I promise to do all I can, to not let it happen again Care for all women and men. I'll start by inviting Diana.